This is Principles in Practice, a Shape of Advice podcast brought to you by professional planner and BlackRock. This series is a conversational-style exploration of the different elements of practice management for advisors, drawing on the knowledge and experience of people that contribute to the delivery of advice to Australian consumers. Feel free to visit our website, professionalplanner.com.au, and get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Principles and Practice podcast. I'm Chris Dastor, editor of Professional Planner. This is the final episode of the series, and it's quite a special one. We'll be discussing buying and selling advice practices. I'm joined by a crew Hobart partner, Tim Lane, and Slipstream Group co-founder, Sharon McClafferty. And later in this episode, we'll also be joined by Doug Turek, who sold his business, Professional Wealth, which merged with Minchin Moore Private Wealth Advisors. Doug will tell us a bit about that process. But first, Tim, has there been a decline in the value of advice practices in the last few years? The people working in this M&A space, myself, Bob Neal, um, Steve Prenderville and, and Jason Phillips, have, we've all actually collated our data for the last 18 months and we can see no, um, uh, no measurable decline in the value of the practices. And additionally, we probably see um, a very large amount of demand for them, particularly with, a, with driven by, you know, uh, the... the um, you know, there's a lot of international investors interested in in our, in our industry. So demand exceeds supply and there's been no measurable drop in prices that we can see. Uh, Tim, I put this to our six coaches who have all sold their own businesses and they all laughed and said, how many times have we been told that advice practice values are going to fall uh, and they never have? So if you run a good business in financial advice, there's going to be a buyer. In fact, Chris, I think on on I called the, uh, the the fact that they would increase over value a couple of years in professional planner, and I would say I think that's come to fruition. And the other part of it is, you know, the thing I was thinking about the inadvertent cause of the Royal Commission is that the quality of those assets has actually increased. The advice is more better documented, the fees are better structured, and um, you know, and and. And the practices we see in evaluation and sales since are so much more better, are so much better prepared and look much better. Um, and in a funny way, I always theorise on the industry. But you know, the other thing to think about is actually, in my view, regulatory risk has dropped. It's, so, so for the risk of the asset has dropped. Generally speaking, the value goes up. And the finding is pretty much been the case as well. Uh, Roger Hartley, who helped broker the uh, the CODA deal, spoke to us and said that international buyers, they're really looking at the Australian market as, as a go-to market, as a really investable market. Well, without putting too fine a point on it, we've got the best sort of superannuation system in the world that's just going to grow and grow and grow with a huge, huge opportunities to advise on that those balances. So, yeah, that's why we're we're so um, so attractive to them, and our valuations relative to the, the international market are lower. So when it comes to succession and internal sales, they seem to be a lot more favoured. Sharon, what's changing with succession as well as with valuations? Yeah, I mean, we so from a slipstream point of view, we we try and give the owners control, which doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean internal succession, but let's build a business that means that that's an option on the table. Uh, so I started speaking to 
you know, hundreds of advice practices from about 2015 in Australia. Uh, and, you know, even then I met so many people who were all about revenue, recurring revenue and just let's profit is irrelevant because I'm going to transact this business on three, three and a half or four times recurring revenue. And I was always just really shocked that someone would run a business for 10 years that was you know, break even after they've paid themselves a commercial salary. So there was just no margin. And that didn't matter because if I've got $2 million of advice fees and I'm going to transact it for 8 mil, like my retirement's sorted, I don't need to earn the profit on the way through. Uh, now, obviously, that's caused a bunch of heartache for thousands of people. Um, but, you know, that's changed. That has changed. And now if you want control, we're not just talking about recurring revenue. We are talking about a profitable business. And if you want internal succession, you actually need to have consistent profits for for people to be able to get loans to actually buy you out. So I do think the game has changed in a really quite a short period of time. I think it's for the better. Like it's much more fun that you actually take some margin out, like take some profit on your way through for those 10 years. And then anything at the end is, you know, this lovely balloon payment for your energy uh, rather than I'm going to risk everything for 10 years and bank on this four times recurring. So I, I think what's massively changed is I think it's foolish now to focus only on recurring revenue uh, and ignore profit. I have also spoken to a few people uh, who've been in this space for sort of 20 or 30 years and they've said to me, we always thought we could just sell our way out of any problem, just onboard new recurring clients. Uh, and at the end of the day, I'm going to get four times on those. So there's still a little bit of that happening. I think it's changed. I think it's changed pretty quickly. But Tim has a much closer view on on all of that. Yeah, I think the interesting thing, if you look at what happened with the bowler situation in A&P, is exactly what Sharon's saying. She's, you know, they were all relying on the four, I think it's four times bowler, and it just disappeared. And to a degree, that's what's happened in the market. These recurring revenues are diminishing in favour of profitability multiples. And so if you've only got one metric and it disappears, you're in trouble. Our work with Slipstream is really about having choices around understanding both where they converge and, and, and really making the most of your situation. And perhaps let's just go into that quickly as well. What is that uh, uh, relationship with Slipstream and, and how does a crew kind of work with them on servicing practices so, so we're a coaching client so you know shout out to our coach Phil. We, you know we've they've helped us a lot with our practice day-to-day but um we sort of are the go-to point in the slipstream group with succession and valuation issues which we really appreciate and i think sharon we did it was the may the may round of um coaching so we went through a a succession planning module with all of those firms in May and focus predominantly on what Sharon was talking about is understanding my valuation and where the differences lie and what my options are to fix that. Um, and it's really just a lot about education. We're trying to educate. So that was um, 90 firms went through the accrue valuation process and, you know, none of ours are at the pointy end of transacting their business. But I was I was actually worried about that content because I'm like we're we're talking you know some of our guys are 35 and planning to be in for 15 years. Uh, I was shocked at how much they got out of the accrued succession planning module in terms of now they are tracking their valuation every quarter, so it becomes this KPI, uh, and so they're tracking the valuation as a multiple of recurring and a multiple of profit, and then they have some to dos to. to to bring some control to the situation. So we now kind of think of this valuation piece as, 
you know, it's it's risk management. What what better insurance policy than to have a saleable business even though you don't intend to sell? Like if, if a curveball comes your way and your business is saleable 10 years before you intend it to sell, incredible insurance. So I love like people are getting really serious around just bringing some control because you, you can't control how the buyer values your business. So if, if you if you have fantastic profit, you know, great recurring revenue, and um, you, you're just bringing more control to a situation that is largely not yours to control. I think the other realisation I got out of it was, was, which I already knew, was that, you know, the next generation is key to the future value of all of these practices. And what came a lot of, I think Sharon can comment on this probably better than I, is I feel like there's a bit of a realisation in the room, in our coaching group when we did it, and I assume it's in the others, that I've really got to, I've really got to get this next generation in and through this succession process to protect that value and to increase it. And so, uh, and we've seen some work come out of that that we've really helped a few firms really start to clarify that issue. And I guess now yeah. how are you actually um, trying to value businesses? What are the best metrics to sort of use? Well, we, we, we focus on profitability primarily and we say, you know, a financial planning practice, you know, between five and a half, six times that, what we call a profitability, which is an EBIT, and we can debate the detail of that. But um, And then what we're trying to do is understand how that relates back to their recurring revenue multiple. And, and really get them past the point of convergence was, the, was one of the things that we talked about in our session with the Slipstream guys is like get it to where it converges or above and then you have options you can sell on either actually at that point in time. Although, as Sharon will point out, you'd be crazy to go to the recurring revenue valuation if, you, if your profitability was higher. So, but then at that side of the curve, you've got, you've got a lot of, um, lot of options, but it's being... Um, De- uh, deliberate and considered about doing it, I think is is what we we were trying to do. Given the demographic shift in the uh, industry or profession, where we haven't been creating new advisors for the last five years, the the breeding ground for new advisors has gone. Um, absolutely, what Tim said in terms of looking after your current team is key, whether you are selling internally or externally, because I think increasingly uh, the buyer is not. You know, in the in the past of buying a book of clients because you could always resource it because there was ten thousand new advisors a year or whatever the numbers were. Um, increasingly now, it's it's a talent acquisition as well. Like there's not going to be uh, that many skilled advisors with you know we've got five year gap in um, and and that will change. Like we don't think that's going to hang around forever, but it is going to have ramifications. Uh, so at at a point in time, your talent is also a part of your value. Yeah, and I think I think Chris, I, the statistic I was quoted is like a hundred people going through the professional year at the moment, which is not nearly enough to get get the job done. So you know, they're like they're they're, they're scarce as instant. With the uh, EBIT model, and when you say what's the relation to revenue, uh, we kind of find even really sophisticated businesses are not quite across what makes up their revenue. And when you kind of say, hey, guess what? We've just done some numbers on the demographics, and in three years' time you know, 35% of your client base is going to be over 80. Have you considered that? And they look at us like we're crazy. And then when you show them the numbers, they're like, we had no idea. And so those, you know, clients who are paying under 3K per annum or the the people who are, the clients who are over 80, 85, like do you, even when you're looking at the profitability multiple, do you go back and discount any of 
or, or like one-off advice or one-off specialist projects. Do you go back and discount any of that? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely you do. Um, it's interesting how granular the detail we put out on a practice now is, you know, have, you know to be honest, you know, you, you, the multiple is driven by the quality of the practice. That's how it works. And the quality drivers are age demographic and size of fee. So, you know, you can see dramatic drops in the price around the bottom third of a practice and because that's what the buyer will immediately focus on their age and the size of the fee. So absolutely that's the case. Um, and you're right, Sharon, I, I have to fess up, I did this in my own practice recently. Sometimes you, they just don't know their numbers and I looked at something the other day so I just did not know my number um, when my partner Marcus came in. So, like, you know, it, it's a very important piece of work uh, and because the buyers are very sophisticated now. They, they look at that detail. Now, one of the things we look a lot at now is tidying up the business, so getting rid of the bad numbers at the bottom before we would go into a, particularly into a sale process, because we know that that'll get a better outcome. But even in a succession process, we say, look, you know, that's a problem that has to be solved over time to keep the value of the practice up. A spongy revenue something that comes up as well when you're looking at these numbers. Can you kind of talk us a bit? about how that impacts valuations? Yeah, I mean, I think back in the day, like I probably, um, you know, maybe one of the first ones to go was people thought corporate super was worth a certain amount of money and then suddenly it was valued at zero. So uh, just understanding that over time, the the value of different parts of your revenue will change uh, and that will be market-driven outside of your control. So, you know, I think understanding what, what is in this revenue, that it's not all created equal. Uh, lots of people have been saying that, you know, revenue from insurance or risk is going to fall. It it actually hasn't. That's held up. Um, but, but it might in the future. So, you know, just understanding the profile of your revenue so that if, if the winds are changing, you can get ahead of them. Uh, I, I'm, as I said, like, and Tim, you're a fantastic example. I think some of the most sophisticated owners and firms in this country are often shocked by their own numbers. And once they know them, the cool thing is once someone like you or many of the other people we work with understand, you know, the different components of their revenue, they tend to make fairly quick decisions. So mm. we've got people, you know, chopping off the bottom 30% and selling it. And But if you can get ahead of the market sentiment on that stuff, you've got options. But if you are flying blind... Uh, then you know, then your options are locked off to you. So I love when people really understand their numbers; they can they can make quite quick, quite strategic decisions. Um, but yes, yeah, so many people are just on autopilot, and I I completely understand it. Looking after their clients, and you know, all of their energy is going on the the life of their clients rather than their own business. Like we see that all the time. But uh, yeah, I just think there's there's power in knowing, and the sooner you know, the better. Like, you you know, the more options are open to you. Tim, I think I've got a quote from you here, which is the best time to start your succession planning is five years ago and the next best time is now. So you can never do it too early. I mean, the thing that Sharon's referring to, which I, I think is absolutely correct, is information drives change. And if you don't have the information, you, and, and this is the same in the back, one of the problems we have with valuing practices and partners in well is unless you fill the fill the space with the right number, they fill it with their number. And so that's why 
an annual valuation or an annual understanding of your valuation is, is easily the best risk management in a multi-part approach you could ever take in, into account. And so, and if if I had my way, every every practice would have a draft IM information memorandum with all the key statistics and the valuation finished every year. So if any event comes along in the in the following year, it's just a you know a, a cookie cutter approach. Here it is. This is what we're going to do. This is the value. Here's what we've all agreed to. And um, you know that that would be the the utopic world that Tim Lane would chase. Tim, I'm seeing a few more. Um... Uh, like parts of books, so like or parts of businesses. We've got uh, across my desk, uh, like people who go, listen, I'm going to retire in 10 years, so I'm going to chop off. And it's not the, even the bottom. I've got one on my desk at the moment that's a, it's a beautiful 200K of revenue tuck in across maybe 15 clients or something. Uh, and it's kind of their, you know, when people go part-time before they retire. Are you seeing any, like, is it just me that's seeing more of that, or are you seeing? I haven't seen a, a lot, lot of that, but that that's quite a legitimate strategy. I don't, I don't, I think, you know, particularly if you can find them the right home um, that you're comfortable with, I think that's a really legitimate strategy. Particularly if you're in the smaller world, because really you've got to there's a there's a decision to be made. You've got to get to, in my view, you've got to get a practice to sort of 1.5, 1.6 somewhere in the near term. To execute the the highest valuation or the best outcome for you. So some people, if you're at five or six hundred, that's a difficult thing to do. So mm. so maybe you know going back the other way and you know chopping up your client base in a in a positive way like that is legitimate. It's all circumstantial. You got to understand what you're trying to achieve, when you've got what your timeline is, when you do it. But it, you know I don't have any problem with that strategy. I think that makes some sense for certain people. So it's not necessarily something that's um quite commonplace yet. It's more we see more, more we see the bottom end or the bit that they don't want. So, um, you know, we we just finished tidying up a client base in the marketplace right now where we sold um, some risk, basically some risk that was sort of not going to fit the strategy going forward as on its own. It wasn't with a, an ongoing service screen, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, so that we see a lot of that, what I call tidy up work mm. pre next step. I haven't seen as much what Sharon does, but look, you know, I'm only this little part of the market in some respects. So what a buyer wants is they want to see a client value proposition. Mm. This is a client value, and these are the things I do, this is what I'm providing, and a list of clients that, that actually completely fit that. And so because that's a because you've got to remember value is about risk. And so I've got to look at a practice and say, I'm gonna ex- I can execute that client value proposition easily. And put that into my business, keep that client happy, and get them to stay. So, so that's the real key piece of the game. I've got this client, and this, I super work on this a lot. You know, this is our client value proposition. This is how I execute it. And then when I go to the market, I say, here's the client value proposition. Here's the fee schedule. So, if you just do what you can see right in front of you, you will retain that client. That's 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 a really important part of um, realizing value in the practice. And that CVP is kind of driven by the ideal client discussion, as in who is your ideal client? And what kind of happens, Chris, is when we do that ideal client discussion, they go, yes, we just want we just want 200 clients that look exactly like that. And then they look at their client base and they've got 800 clients and maybe 120 look like an ideal client. And once we, once we prove that we can onboard, consistently onboard their version of ideal client, 
and uh, you know the back-end processes are all built for that ideal client. Once we can prove that, the confidence to chop that tail increases like massively. So it's almost like as soon as you get four organic organic growth of four ideal clients, they look at the bottom 650 clients and they go, I'm ready. Like I'm ready to get rid of these. But the in terms of profitability, like all your systems, processes, people, uh, brand then can be aligned to that ideal client. So it's actually a, like not only is it a nicer business to run, it's it's so much more profitable. Um, but when we first come in and say, hey, like, we think you could, uh, you know, sell the tail or whatever, people are really nervous because they say, oh, well, you know, I rely on that 400K of revenue. Mm. But as soon as you can show them that organic growth in their target client segment is possible, then it's like, then it gets exciting. And then we talk to Tim. <laughs> Hello, a crew. Can you please help us? <laughs> Thank you. So, so the thing you've got to remember is that true goodwill is future revenue. It's future revenue. And so what if you can demonstrate, I had a client value proposition, which is keeping this piece of revenue happy and creating new referrals and new revenue, people will pay more for that because what they do is they say, I can see a future profit that's $200,000 higher than where we are now because of that, and therefore I'm prepared to play in that extra higher value space to get that. And, and so... You know, there's embedded value in a client value proposition and an ideal client that that works and is is really driving the value of these practices. So, Sharon, you touched on a quote from Tim earlier about when the right time to start planning for succession is, or and I guess what when the second best time for planning for succession is. But what do um what what are firms who are thinking about it really need to be doing now? Because if it's something that they're thinking about in the next three, five, maybe ten years, um realistically, what what should they be doing when they um, reach that point where they do need to be started thinking about succession? Um, well, the great news on succession and valuations, uh, it's all the same things that you want to do to run a better business. So, I mean, there's probably 10 different metrics and reduce the reliance on the key for owners. And, you know, there's, there's 10 different things you can do. Uh, we actually call this a bit of a love it or list it Project. So we have people who call us and they're like, I'm actually over it. I'm over it today. I'm calling you because I don't know who else to call. And provided they've got kind of the energy to do that sprint at the end of the marathon, we we go, okay, well, let's let's talk about love it or list it. So we're going to renovate this business so that it is more valuable. But by doing that, you're probably going to fall back in love with it. And instead of just staying for another two and a half, three years, you're going to stay another six or seven. Um, so the, the great news is all of the things that you would do to prepare for sale are the things that you should do to run a better business. Uh, I do have another quote from Tim here. Like, I mean, we rely, we do rely on Tim. Like at the pointy end when someone Sorry, needs... I reckon I've got a team to work on it. It's just not Tim, but yeah. <laughs> true, true. The accrue group. Um, but uh, the maybe the one thing that you would boost if if succession was on your mind, um, you can never under-communicate in succession planning. So if it wasn't on your mind, maybe, maybe your communication with key people on your succession journey would be a bit slower. Uh, maybe you wouldn't be... Uh, maybe you wouldn't offer as much clarity to the team in terms of here's the pathway forward. Mm. Uh, but if you really have worked out that the team are key to this journey, then you can never over-communicate. 
So um, I, I love that idea. Like there's particularly for key people, like involve them, involve them early, tell them the truth. So often I'll get a call and I'll say, look, oh, my successor left. I said, well, what did you tell them? And they go, oh, I didn't tell them anything. I went, well, there's a problem. So so it, it's it's just pretty basic stuff. Is And look, you know, SWIFT team run a, a breakaway planning session and, and one of the things we used in our practice, we did that and brought those future successes into that. So they actually knew what we were doing. They knew they were part of the future. And 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 that is such such a powerful way to, to handle um, bringing them into, because they, they, again, it comes back to human nature. If you don't fill the void with the right information, they will fill it with what they think. And, and, and that's just another example of that. Fill it with the right information by communicating well, um, because these, and again, it's become even more critical given the shortage of talent that we do do this. Yeah, I say to people, if you're going to document a three-year business plan and you have, you know, partners in waiting or future future equity owners in your team, they've got to be there. Like it's their business plan too. It's their future as well. So we have lots of kind of partners in waiting. And even if that is, you know, five years down the track, they still want to be, it's still their life and their career that you're planning. So let them in the room. The other thing too, Chris, is that with succession planning and valuation, you know, what I call big bang, which is just by 50% of this practice, that's a hard thing for a young person to do. And so, you know, you should be starting, if you start early, you plan and you communicate, you can bring them five, 10, 50, all along the journey. And, and that de-risks the transaction for both parties. So one doesn't have to have an enormous amount of debt straight away. That, and you've got to remember, holding equity in a practice is a, is a, is, isn't something everyone's used to. So you give them a bit of a train, this is how it works, you get a dividend flow, you get a profit flow, I understand. And then, then you you sort of got to create your internal market a bit because sometimes and people will be scared by a big transaction, but oh, I can do 5%, that works, you know, um, and that's a real key thing. And we've done a lot of that with these slipstream firms where we said, look, let's get them into this level to, to train them and that then brings them through the process. You know, the big, the big bang is what I call we, I'm going to get someone to buy all of it at the end. By definition, is a high-risk transaction. So then theoretically pushes value down. So if you can go early um, and consistently share the, the benefits of, of, of buying and selling, it, it becomes much easier. So, Doug, I'll pass it over to you now. How did the process of merging the business actually happen? I thought about how we would get how I'd carry on this business without me when I set it up. So you could argue yeah. um, you should think about how you exit your business when you started 17 years earlier. Um, and so we made a lot of strategic decisions around, you know, common platforms and efficient processes and staffing and et cetera, that then led us to a sort of gray area about when would I leave the business and, um, you know, you were first referred to me by a very satisfied colleague uh, who you'd helped out with, and um, I asked you to do evaluation, and um, that was uh, informative, uh, and it was useful for an option, which was, um, you know, uh, around just changing the ownership of the company. But um, it it started a relationship that then led on to running a wide expression of interest sales slash merger process, which um, you were instrumental and necessary to run. The key things we did with Doug was like, in the information, firstly, it was the information memorandum, getting that right so that the parties could see. But 
in, in essence, so we were looking for a, a, that document to help us find the right cultural fit for Doug's practice. It wasn't we weren't really in a, in a in in its sort of true sense out to sell it, so to speak. We were out to do the succession planning with the practice and land the clients and the staff with the right party. Is that a reasonable way to assess it, Doug? No, it's incredibly relevant. So um, you know, we have number of clients who needed some excellent con continuing service and we had some fantastic staff who needed excellent employment and um, you know and, and even third on the list was it would be nice for me to take a little bit of equity out of the business uh, and really that only is going to happen if you answer the first two questions properly so if you have satisfied Staff, they'll keep your clients satisfied in the you know post transaction phase because you know, no one pays you upfront all of the sale price. They're really just buying the recurring revenue that has stuck around in a year or two's time. So if you get those first two things wrong and you don't you don't have a good cultural fit and uh, an alignment of the way you serve clients, that that goes all the way from. You know the pricing model you use, the investment model you use. Uh, if you can minimize change, like platforms, and uh, so that there's less change for clients, then I think the higher is the chance you're going to retain revenue, retain staff, and uh, get your capital payment that ultimately you deserve. And how did you? Um, so, can you talk us a bit through about finding that right buyer that actually, and how the uh, transaction actually went down? Well, that's, that would be Tim to speak yeah. to. Um, the other thing I can say is, you know, a, a few of my colleagues have thought that, you know, it, they, they can do this themselves. And I would suggest that's like trying to sell your house yourself. And the problem also being a uh, working in the business owner is one, you don't have the time, but two, you don't have the contacts. Uh, and Tim uh, and his colleagues were fantastic in being able to uh, identify people who we would never have done uh, and, and um, you know also it's important to run a process where you don't lose control uh, and Tim can speak more about that but again it, it'd be like you could probably sell your house yourself but you shouldn't you probably yeah, you don't have the time you don't have the contacts you don't you lose control of the process. Uh, so there's a real value in working with someone who does this day to day and having a, a Rolodex of people who want to buy. So, yeah, like I think the process would, so just to be clear, when there was a team of us, it wasn't just Tim Lane, so Bob, Neil, and, and Dave Fotheringham from CV, we teamed up on this one to get to do. Uh, so, yeah, the process was very important, identifying the right parties and not putting any of the parties that we, we thought were inappropriate um, to go into the process with the was a key thing. I think I think the thing that isn't coming out in what Doug's telling you is that whether you like it or not, the sale of you know sale or merge or succession planning in your business is quite an emotional thing because it's your life's work. And having an independent party sitting around you and helping you uh, interact with those parties and getting you to understand what they're trying to say uh, is very important. So um, we we sort of guided Doug through that process. Uh, you know we hit. You hit hurdles on the way around structure, tax, you know, payment terms, all of that sort of stuff. So we, we were able to work through those without swapping Doug. And I think, Doug, fair to say you could, in a general sense, keep running the business quite efficiently through that process without too much distraction. Uh, look, but don't underestimate it's It's also a full-time job to provide 
data to hungry Tim and his colleagues to build an information memorandum and then to provide supplemental information to people who have more questions and then to do due diligence uh, and then to do, you know, post-merger integration. So, uh, yeah, it's just probably another reinforcement why you can't do this yourself, uh, but it's a, it's a lot of effort. And I guess um, finally as well, what are the, the key lessons that you uh, learned from it, Doug, that you think other advisors or business practitioners should know? But this is a, an inevitability and it takes a long time. It takes a few years in advance to sort of find the right time to sell. Uh, it takes about a year to sell and it takes about a year or two to transition into the new state, whether you're involved in that new business or not. Um, and so it's not something you can leave to the last minute. Um, and it can, so it's, it, that's probably the, you know, a key lesson. Another one is, um, you know, once you're done, you still have to write foundation SOAs for the new advisory firm that uh, where the law requires brand new advice. So there's, you get bogged down in some of those other things afterwards. So. It doesn't feel like just because you signed a contract the next day you're on a jet plane that overseas. So, no, it really is a, uh, a transition. You're almost weaving two pieces of rope together, and over time you can back away, but not immediately. Tim, Doug, Sharon, thank you all for joining me. 